Good morning. It is good to see all of you this morning. Reading from our text this week at the end of Hebrews 12. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. What a great privilege it is to gather and do just that this morning. And we also have the joy of digging into this text and hearing from one of our pastors here at Zionsville Fellowship, Eric Bobbitt, this morning. He has um, taught us before, so he may be a familiar face to you. He also serves as an elder here at Zionsville Fellowship. He and his wife, Jan, have five children and one granddaughter who he'd love to show you pictures of. And um, he is just a gifted, gifted teacher, a great man of discernment, and a dear friend to many of us. So we're thankful for you, Eric, in so many ways, and look forward to hearing from you. Thank you, Tana. It's good to be here this morning. I never know what to do with introductions like that. It's just... So I don't know. But thank you very much. I appreciate that. Um, it's great uh, to be here this morning, and it's really a privilege for me uh, to be able to participate in Habits again. And so we're on, uh, as Tana said, Lesson 16 on the Unshakable Kingdom. And so I'm coming in late on this study for Hebrews because there's only one chapter left, uh, chapter thir 13. But I have really personally benefited from this study of the second half of uh, chapter 12. And I've talked uh, with Tana and with Lori about it, and then had uh, looked at the study guide uh, that you all have been working through. That's such a gift, isn't it? I mean, the, the study guide amazes me every year, because we're able to, at the conclusion of that, I'm able to, to take a look at that and meet with the leaders and, and uh, pray for the, for the upcoming study. As elders, we do that every year. Uh, it's just a tremendous gift. And then uh, on Tuesday morning, the leaders meet. Uh, the Habits leaders meet uh, one day before, on, uh, before the Wednesday study. And so whoever's going to be speaking meets with them. And so I just have such a rich experience on those Tuesday mornings gathering around uh, together. And so yesterday morning, um, we read the passage, and I just said, what, um, what's, your, what's an impression that you have? Or what, just what comes uh, to you impactful out of this passage, just off the top of your head? And I, and, uh, I wrote down, and as... Uh, the ladies answered that question. I wrote down six different <laughs> impressions that were made um, that, in, that impacted me. Um, so I, I wish we could tape those sessions and just turn, uh, hand those out to everybody because it's such a, a great conversational time together. Um, this is a profound passage, one that I think all of us have been looking forward to being able to hear about and to discuss in your groups this morning. Uh, so let's pray. Lord, thank you that you um, gave us the gift of song and of singing and have gifted people to write uh, those words and the music and to, to play and to lead us as well. And Lord, um, your name is beautiful and your name is powerful and you are the faithful one. And we gather here this morning uh, because you exist and because you've shown yourself to us, because we can know you and then you call us to be like you, 
And we're here because of the great promises that you've given to us. We thank you for the gift of your spirit and of your word and of your people. We thank you for the promise of a heavenly home and that we will be transformed uh, even more into the likeness of who you are and live in intimacy and joy in your presence. Thank you, Lord, that um, just the terrifying fear of being distant from you and being scared uh, to be around you, that that has been lifted because of your son. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Um, Take a look at the handout. I think most of you got that when you came in this morning. And just take a look at the very top of that. And uh, we'll read um, that to start out. It, uh, It says, in regards to this second part of chapter 12, with rich imagery and compelling warnings, this passage reflects the purpose of the book of Hebrews. And so at the very beginning um, of the study, your, your uh, binder provides this overview. So I went back to your study guide, looked at the beginning of it, and what it says about the book of Hebrews. And this is what your study guide says about Hebrews. The primary purpose of Hebrews is to encourage Christians to endure by warning them to not abandon their hope in Christ. Hebrews proves the superiority of Christ and his new covenant over angels, Moses, the Old Testament priesthood, and the sacrificial system of the Old Covenant. We need constant reminders of the superiority of Christ so that we may also run with endurance. And so when you read this passage, you can see, yes, uh, this is really a summary and really a climactic or dramatic expression of what the book of Hebrews uh, is about. So uh, let's read this together. Hebrews 12, 18 uh, to 29. You're familiar with this, but I think it always helps to to read it again one more time when we're going to talk about it. Hebrews 12, 18. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom, and a tempest, and the sound of a trumpet, and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion, and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth but also the heavens. This phrase yet once more indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is things that have been made, 
in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. So in the first section there, verses 18 to 24, we're really shown God's nature, who He is, and what He has done for us, and then our current status and our blessings. So the first section really isn't, doesn't give imperatives or commands. It's just statements about what is and who God is. And then based on that, in 25 to 29, we're given a warning. Do not refuse he who speaks. And then we're called to be grateful for this unshakable kingdom. And we're called to worship with reverence and awe. So we'll just move through that here this morning, looking at those two main sections. The first section is con contrasting Mount Sinai with Mount Zion. And the sec second one is uh, having a faithful response to the new covenant. And so that's the structured notes you have. Is we'll just move right through that. Contrasting Sinai and Zion, and then how we're to respond uh, to that. So the author begins by telling us that we have not come to Mount Sinai. And so as we read, the Israelites had a ter terrifying experience. And this is recounted for us. Verses 18 to 21 is a pattern of phrases and reminiscences from Exodus and from Deuteronomy that replay the giving of the law at Mount Sinai. This is an earthly and a physical place. It's a mountain that can be touched, but no one is allowed to do that or they'll be slain. And when the Lord descended to speak with Moses and Israel, and when he was on that mountain, there was blazing fire and smoke and tempest and darkness and gloom and storm, and that's a lot of stuff. <laughs> right? How all that happened and in what order, but it was something. So God's people knew that God was there. He's the invisible spirit, but he made himself manifest in those ways. Smoke billowed up from the mountain, and it shook as in an earthquake. And this, of course, emphasizes for us the magnitude, the might, the majesty of God. And also his absolute unapproachability. So the people were close enough to the mountain to see these manifestations, but they were barred from actually the presence of God or being with him. And the human response to all of this was sheer terror. The overwhelming fear. They were afraid to look. They were afraid to listen. They were men and women separated from their God. Now, I don't know if you've ever had an experience where you are terrified because of your physical surroundings. When the earth and the ground and the wind and the weather, things which we normally trust, generally, turn on you. And everything changes in your physical environment to the point where you're terrified. I mean, this can be a storm, a tornado, a hurricane, an earthquake, a volcano, being caught up in a fire. And I imagine if you've ever been in any of those kinds of situations, um, you're not likely to forget it, right? What, that, what happens inside of you 
in those kinds of moments. Uh, my wife, Jan, and I were in Tokyo, Japan many years ago during the summer. We sent, served as missionaries for a summer um, in a college ministry. And that summer we stayed uh, in, in um, the, the, what at that time was the tallest building in Asia. It's a big hotel building. We stayed there for the summer. We, were, we stayed on the 18th floor one evening getting ready for bed. And we, you can imagine what happens in Japan, right? We start to feel this, this, this little shudder. You know, like goes through your feet, goes through the floor. It's just the weirdest feeling because you, I basically trust the ground to stay as the ground, right? And so the shudder happens. And then you get a sway, you know, in the room that we're in. And then there's popping and creaking inside the walls, right? So you, I can hear, um, and we can hear movement inside uh, the walls that are happening. And, and then it's just all this noise and movement. I'm really expecting like an I-beam, like a movie or something, big steel I-beams and just puncture out of the wall or something. So we're, we're in some kind of panic mood. We quickly get out of the room, out into the hallway. People are speaking Japanese. This is not helpful for us at the time. So it's just, just people everywhere scurrying around, panicking. Obviously, you don't, you don't take an elevator down. So we go down 18 flights of stairs out into the, to the big plaza area. Hundreds of people have gathered there. And it, it didn't last very long, but we had to wait a long time before we were allowed to go back in. But that kind of experience... What do you want to do when tornado, hurricane, fire, earthquake, just the powerful wind, those kinds of things come to you. You want to escape. You want to get away from it because the things that you have trusted, you can no longer trust, right? You have met a force that you cannot overcome. You cannot contain it. It is so large and you are so, so tiny. And so this account at Mount Sinai that we read about actually happened to real people. And that was, that was their experience. And so they, later on in their life, could tell the story. Like I just told you that story. They could tell the story to their grandkids of when, when I was at Mount Sinai and the smoke and the earthquake and the fear that we all had. And we just wanted to get away from it. Fire, storms, darkness, dread. It happened to them, but it had this, that hasn't happened to us. And it's our responsibility to engage our imagination. And that's why God gives us accounts like this. So that the lessons and the meanings of that experience that we didn't have will still impact us. A measure of maturity and wisdom is the ability to learn from someone else's experience that is told to you. And aren't we forever trying to help our children to understand that? Something that they haven't gone through, but you share the experience or the wisdom from it, and you want them to be able to take that in and to live accordingly. And it's a celebration and training when one of them will appropriately respond to a truth that they've been told about, but they haven't had to go through themselves. So the Lord wants us to place ourselves at Sinai. And why does he want us to do that? To absorb the reality of it. And so we have some God-given gifts that are not to be atrophied. Imagination, contemplation, the rehearsal of narratives, 
in our mind to see what we have never seen. To make connections as you sense and as you feel realities. So you can choose in light of the promises of things that you have been told. And since we weren't at Mount Sinai with Moses, we consider and we meditate and we imagine and we relive in order for us to feel and to understand the startling immensity and the bone-shattering transcendence of the one whom if you decided to stand against him, if you determined, I am not going to honor God, I'm going to be against you. To do that would be like a gnat in a hurricane. It would be like a toothpick thrown into a blast furnace. And I better understand that if I take some time quietly to really imagine Sinai and to place myself in my own mind and my own, as if it were my experience. And God's people have done this for centuries. Because think of the millions of people that have known the Lord and how many of them got to be at Sinai. Not very many. But all of us have read this, have heard of this. And it's our responsibility to learn from that as best as we possibly can. I don't know how that works for you. I mean, life is so noisy and busy and all the things that we are connected to and the responsibilities that we have. It's our pleasure, really, to be able to find a way to be quiet someplace and to imagine and to recreate and to meditate on things and to be before the Lord in that. But our story doesn't conclude at Mount Sinai, and that's the point of this passage, right? It's to learn from what was there, but that's not uh, the end of the story. And so we learn in Verse 22, but you, meaning us, we have come to Mount Zion. And here we discover the difference between the paralyzing fear of the old covenant and the extraordinary joy of those who are in Christ in the new covenant. We have come to a different mountain. And Mount Zion in the Old Testament is God's holy mountain. And this is where he especially dwells. Verse 22 says, You have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. So here in Hebrews, Zion is linked not just with the physical city of Jerusalem, but with the new Jerusalem, the heavenly city. And God's people will one day dwell in the eternal city of God, which cannot fail and it cannot be shaken, for the living God is there. That is where he dwells, and no one can triumph over him. Also, we've come to innumerable angels in festal gathering. So this is just such a great little description here um, in very creative words, saying here's, here's things that have been given to you. In this new covenant, through Jesus Christ, we have things that people before did not have. And we, say that we have the hope of, of this eternal city where we will live with the Lord and then, this, then there's this gathering of angels in this assembly. And can you, can you see that? Thousands upon thousands upon thousands 
of heavenly beings arrayed in this assembly that rivals any coronation or any wedding or any victory celebration that you've ever been a part of or that you've seen on television. So the Lord is so astoundingly creative and generous to us that he's made these intelligent, magnificent beings with whom we are going to be able to worship together before the throne of God. So again, this is, I don't know how much you, you think about that reality happening. So these are, these are beings that if, if one of them manifested themselves right up here right now, Scripture says that we would be tempted to worship that being because the light and the glory and the magnificence of that creature would be so astounding to us. We wouldn't know, we wouldn't know what to do with ourselves. And so we're going to join with thousands of them in this huge celebration before the throne of God. And that helps us to understand that this thing that we're a part of, the kingdom, and following the Lord is so much bigger than me. It's so much bigger than just us right here. It covers the whole earth, all of history. And then these other beings, that we, we, don't, we don't even understand what they'll be like, but it will be incredible. And we'll join with them in this worship before our Father. The author continues to rejoice in the privileges that belong to believers, emphasizes our confidence that we have in contrast to the Old Testament believers. He says, we've come to a heavenly assembly, to a place where those who belong to God will have their names inscribed in heaven. So after the, the part about angels, to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. Now, can you think of anything that would be more important to be said about you or about me, that we are registered, that we are enrolled, that our name has been placed in the books of heaven, that that, that is going to be our home one day. Imagine this past week, many of you have heard Billy Graham's statement that he had made years ago. Someday you will read or hear that Billy Graham is dead. Don't believe a word of it. I shall be more alive than I am now. I will have just changed my address. I will have gone into the presence of God. To the assembly of the firstborn who enrolled in heaven. That's the blessing that you have. And to God, the judge of all. So we also come to God. And this terrifying God who has manifested himself at Sinai, and the Israelites could not even go to touch that mountain. They could not really continue to hear his voice. It was so frightening to them, and they wanted to escape. Yet now, according to Hebrews 4.16, what we're told is, let us now draw near with confidence to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and grace to help in time of need. So rather than shielding ourselves and trying to run away, we are actually told to walk toward and to enter in, not sheepishly, but with confidence. And that's the gift that we have been given. Because Jesus, who now stands between the judge and ourselves, is the mediator 
of this new arrangement, of this new economy that's happened. And we draw near in trust and in assurance because of the blood of Christ. And this blood of Christ, we read, speaks better than the blood of Abel. Now, what in the world is that about? <laughs> Isn't that such an interesting little phrase to put in here? Because you don't read those kind. Of, I don't read those kinds of things very often or find those in the Scripture, that the blood of Abel is, is speaking differently than the blood of Christ. I think it refers to the fact that Abel's blood testified to his faith. So he trusted, trusted God and gave a sacrifice to God which was accepted. And so his faith was acceptable to God. And so his blood speaks to that. But that doesn't really avail anything for us. Jesus' blood, his death, then is what saves us. So the blood of Jesus has power or effect in our lives that the blood of Abel didn't have, doesn't have for us. Also in Genesis 4.10, it says that Abel's blood is crying out to God from the ground. God says that about it to his brother Cain. So Abel's blood calls for vengeance, calls for recompense, calls for justice to be done. And Jesus' blood calls for reconciliation, not for vengeance. So Jesus' blood is, is better than Abel's blood. So the author has set before us two great contrasting mountains. Sinai. And the lessons from both of these need to stay with us. Sinai needs to stay with us. Zion, where we currently are, needs to be with us. So as those who were before Mount Zion, we must ask ourselves, God's people were once at Mount Zion. We have to ask ourselves, have I developed or devalued or discarded the reality and the message of Mount Sinai? Is it still with me in the ways that it should be? We now have access. We've been brought into God's family. The Lord's Spirit dwells in us. We are His temple. With all of this intimacy... And all this acceptance from him, it, we must remember that his nature hasn't changed. His absolute transcendence, his otherness of his moral perfection, his frightening purity remain today just as they did at Sinai. Yesterday, one of the leaders commented in our discussion, I need to remember Mount Sinai because it inspires awe in me about God's holiness. I need to remember Mount Sinai because it inspires in me awe about God's holiness. So we should not mistake the accessibility to God that we now enjoy for ease of accessibility. Because I now have the invitation to come near to him. I shouldn't think that it's just an easy thing for me to have gotten there. It was costly. Because God sent his son to his death in order for me to have that access. His terrifying wrath has been placed on another. It didn't just go away. On the other hand, some of us tend to stay at the foot of Mount Sinai. 
Some of us tend to forget Mount Sinai. Others of us remain there. We feel safer somehow keeping distant, right? So we're invited in right past the veil to the throne to be at our Father's feet, to be closer than that, right? But some of us, for different reasons, feel a lot more comfortable if we just at the back of the room or even a little bit further away than that. And we, re- we rely probably too much on our own sense of our own worthiness. And since I know who I am and what I'm like, I know I don't deserve to be very close, so I think I'll stay back here. So a fear of being close to our Father or doubt that Christ's blood really avails for me or a kind of, uh, kind of a reverse pride <laughs> uh, that I feel so badly about myself that I'm lowly, that I'm not going to be able to go there. But, but the reverse pride of that is that I'm not going to believe that, that God's provision is for me. Jesus' blood, I understand, covers for anyone who believes. Salvation is free and available to all of you. Uh, but I am really lowly enough and confused enough and hurt enough and something else enough that I think I'll just go with a different program because I really, I really can't, I can't find the feeling, the belief, the closeness, the trust to go there. And so I actually think I'm low, I'm lowly. I think lowly of myself, but it's, a, but it's actually pride because I say I'm, I'm, I'm going to go by my feelings, not by what God says. And so I'm actually living in, at Sinai then afraid and the howling wind and the smoke and the, the earthquake and all those things and his justice and all of his beauty and glory keep me away so we don't want to forget about uh, Zion and we don't want to forget about Sinai we need to have both of those lessons uh, available for us and so we don't really want a truncated view of God right an incomplete or chopped off sliced off view of him And we need to know the Lord holds together grace and truth and love and justice and mercy and wrath. And that actually takes a lot uh, um, to embrace all of that and to know that God is all of those things and I am to respond to all of those parts of him. And that he has made a way for us. And this is what he had in mind from the beginning, right? It was for us to be close to him. That's why he made us. In this complicated mess that we've created for ourselves, he has a beautiful way to be just and holy and wrathful and kind and gentle and accepting. He can be all of those things. He's made a way for us to not have to just stay with one of the other. So after celebrating this, the status and these blessings of the new covenant, we can see, starting in verse 25, what a faithful response to the new covenant would be. So we'll just uh, quickly take a look at these three, three responses uh, that the author wants for us. And um, the tone here really is that the greater the privilege, the greater to the responsibility. Jesus said, to whom much has been given, much is required. And so that's really the tone here is, wow, you, you are, you're at Mount Zion. You have all these blessings. You, God has shown you 
these, the completion, the fullness of his truth. So you too should be faithful. In, in verse 25, he gives us a warning in light of all that we've heard. Do not refuse him who is speaking. At Sinai, God's people shrunk in fear. They, got, they begged God not to speak. And we're not to repeat that kind of a refusal. The Israelites refused God's words brought to them through his messenger Moses. And as they didn't escape the consequences, neither will we. But we would be rejecting what God has done through his son. Not just through an earthly messenger, but through a heavenly one. The son of God has come. So if you can, you can stop for a moment and you can personalize this, right? Just think to yourself, is there any way that I am refusing the voice of God. And that can be obviously in the scriptures. There's something that he has spoken to us directly. And you're just, we'll just set that over there for right now. There also can be the still quiet voice, his promptings, his leadings, his spirit working in you. And you can turn away from that. And then a more, I think a more passive way um, to do that kind of a sneaky way is uh, I just won't open this because if I don't read this very often or if I don't hear his words don't put myself in a place where I'm hearing them then I don't have to really be concerned about whether or not I'm refusing them so I just, I just never get started at all in listening to them and that, that's, that's a way of, of refusal uh, as well next we're called to show gratitude for an unshakable kingdom at Sinai, God's voice shook the earth. This is going to occur again in a dramatic fashion. There's going to be a great shaking in the future. It's going to include all of creation. This refers to the final judgment so that all that's corruptible and defiling in the present creation will be removed. And there'll be a new heaven and a new earth and it's going to shine with intense beauty. And what is to be our response to that is gratitude. That there is, in this existence that we have of corruption and change and loss and pain and impermanence and uncertainty, there is an unshakable kingdom that exists and that we have a part in it. And by implication then, since there are impermanent and permanent things, the question lingers, am I overly attached to the wrong thing? Am I investing or protecting or polishing things that are actually going to pass away? I don't know if you've ever had that experience in your life. I think high school is a good time uh, to think back on this happening or young adulthood where you really invested yourself in a set of relationships or some event or some thing that you knew was the thing uh, that, that was your life. And then... Time passes and some kind of change occurs and it dawns on you that really wasn't very important. It passed away. I've moved beyond that. In fact, everybody I know moved beyond that. And you can feel a little silly, actually, for how much drama and interest and energy you poured into to, to whatever part of your life that was. That's just part of growing up. But wouldn't it, wouldn't it be something if at the end of your life, you look back on your whole life or major parts of your life and you felt that, well, that was kind of silly. I spent so much of myself and my life in that kind of a thing, which turns out it's impermanent and poof, 
it's gone now. So we have this unshakable kingdom. There are permanent things. We are to find those and give ourselves to them and then have gratitude that such things exist and that we can enjoy them forever. And then lastly, the author says in verse 28, thus, he says, all that we've learned so far in this passage, out of all these things, thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. So do we know him for who he is? True glimpses of God should prompt true worship, extolling his worth and his magnitude, his beauty, honorably, reverently, and giving our will and our life over to his desires. And this section then concludes with a reminder. So all of these things we know about him and these blessings he's given to us, we worship him with awe and reverence for his holiness and his wrath and his generosity and kindness to us. And this, this is so interesting. Uh, it's just like stuck in a, you know, a comma after all. Verse 29, for our God is a consuming fire. Oh, because <laughs> so, I would almost expect Sinai, wrath, holiness, distance, Zion, acceptance, closeness, intimacy. So what I'll conclude with is because our God is a loving father who has an intimate relationship with you, his child. That, that's, that would seem to make sense to me. But he, he throws it almost back over here. God is a consuming fire. And so the author here is going back to Deuteronomy 4, <clears throat> where this is what Moses says to the people. Moses is explaining that he's not going to be able to enter into uh, the promised land, and he warns the people, do not get caught up in idol idolatry. Our God, for our God is a consuming fire. And so we all know the, the properties of fire, heat, and light that it gives us in positive ways. It also can burn, and it consumes, it, it destroys things. And so uh, it's instructive just to, we can just quickly run through the Bible and say, God and fire, God being a fire, what are examples of that? And so uh, these will be familiar uh, to you. Uh, Sodom and Gomorrah, unrighteous city, God pronounces judgment upon them and unleashes fire and judgment upon Sodom and Gomorrah and destroys them. Elijah and the prophets of Baal contest. Each of them sets up a, a, a sacrifice, an altar offering, and calls down upon their god or gods to light that. And then God brings fire down and lights that. Both of those are examples of judgment, really. Sodom and Gomorrah. And then the uh, prophets of Baal are judged. Fire. The burning bush, Moses meets God personally, and God reveals himself and then gives mission and purpose and insight to Moses. And it, it's a fire through, through which that is happening. God's people wandered in the wilderness. They're led by a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. So they, get, they have light. Helps them when they travel at night. So they have direction, protection, sense of security, God and fire. Pentecost in Acts 2, the Holy Spirit is promised and he comes. Gifts are given. The mission of the church is unleashed in power. Tongues of fire. Flames come from the heavens down upon these believers. And in Malachi 3, verse 2, it says, Who can endure the day of God's coming? 
for he is like a refiner's fire. A purifier of silver, he will purify the sons of Levi. So fire is a source to purify and to make holy. God is a consuming fire. In holiness, he judges unrighteousness and he burns it up. He consumes sin, destroys it. But the fire of the Lord also protects and provides. It reveals, gives insight and purpose. It brings power and mission and it refines his people. So where that, leaves us, where that leads us, leaves us is we want the refiner's fire to purify us. And we want those, uh, the power that can come from the Spirit and the, the flames, the tongues of those flames and the burning bush that reveals God. We, we want him to reveal himself and to know him. And that pillar of fire for guidance, we desire that as well. So we have an interesting relationship with the fire of the Lord, right? There's so much of it that we actually, like the light and heat of a fire that you want to be around, we're drawn to that. But at the same time, we have fixed in our mind the image and the reality of the consuming fires of judgment. And we know that our God is a consuming fire. And we know that we've escaped that, really, through no merit of our own. We don't have to fear those fires. And we have his strength in us to be able to endure all the way to the end. Uh, let's uh, conclude our time uh, by uh, reading out of Revelation 5, if you can turn to that. So I'd like for us to celebrate together this one who's made all of these things possible for us. Because there's one person one God-man who transported us from Sinai to Zion, and that is Jesus Christ. And so here in, in Revelation 5, this is a window into your future. This is a glimpse into heaven. And so John, in his vision here in Revelation 5, sees a scroll, but no one is deemed worthy to open it. And then a lamb is seen, a lamb who looks as if he was slain, one who was slain. And then he begins um, to be able to open the scroll. So how about if you stand with me, and we will read this to conclude. Starting in verse 7 of chapter 5. So just as that part of Hebrews 12 was a combination of the book of Hebrews, this passage is a culmination of all of what we've talked about this morning. Verse 7, and he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he'd taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, 
saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. Lord, we look forward to being able to do that with the elders and thousands upon thousands of angels and upon whatever beings that you have around you. And we look forward to doing that with each other. Thank you, Lord, that we have come to Mount Zion and we've come to you, the judge of all things, in your moral perfection and your beauty and your glory and that we have such a warm, sweet acceptance through your Son. Thank you for all that we're able to experience together. And Lord, we ask this morning that you'd continue to make yourself known and that we would be good to one another and share the goodnesses that we've learned from you and be true encouragements. In Christ's name, amen. Thank you.